It is Wednesday, March the 8th, 2023. Welcome in everybody to episode number 79 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's pitching talk each and every week with the five-time world champ, the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, the research ace, James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle, producer Dan Rourke is with us as well. Uh, first and foremost, I apologize in advance if the if the audio and the picture quality on my end's a little low this week uh, on the road working off the iPad. So thanks for bearing with us in that regard, uh, guys. I don't know about either of you, but I feel like I've watched more spring training games already this year than I have in the entire past due to the new rules. And I'm wondering like where we're at with our spring training tolerance here. Are you super engaged, or are you already over it, waiting for the regular season to begin? It seems like ratings are up across the board. I know ESPN uh, reported that ratings were way up, significantly higher for their first few games. And I think there's a there's a novelty, obviously, to the new rules. People want to see the pace of play. They want to see the clock. They want to see how these rules kind of look. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm still watching. I'm still looking. So I, I think the interest is probably potentially at an all-time high. I'm a big spring training curmudgeon, even though I'm, you know, Mr. Baseball, we all love the game, but it's always such a tease when pitchers and catchers report and you know, you're still six, seven weeks away from opening day. That said, definitely more interest this year because of the curiosity around all the new rules, trying to see, you know, how the games are going to work. And even on a professional level, how do, how do teams and how do we you know, broadcast the games differently uh, to, to the audience now that we're going to have a, a different different timing on everything now yeah i would say as a fan the interest level is probably about the same uh from a professional standpoint like my engagement is is probably through the roof because like you said james we're, we're learning we're learning as we go we're learning new and new uh, newer things more and more information about the new rules and how they affect the game as the games are being played so it's uh, really important we're gonna we're gonna get into some of those uh instances where the, the rules kind of reared its head uh, for good, bad, and, and ugly and see what we think of that. We're going to dive a, a little bit deeper with a guy like Max Scherzer, who seems like he is way more advanced in the game right now than everybody else. Like he is the model of how a pitcher could utilize the pitch clock uh, with, with the bases empty, with people on base. Uh, I think it's like gamesmanship personified with Max Scherzer. So we'll dive into that. The Mets say that they're going to be using a six-man rotation at certain times this season, although Jose Quintana was just hurt for a touch on the uh, six-man scenario for the New York Mets. We're also going to pose the question, and we're going to do this, uh, I guess, by region up until the opening week of the regular season, and we're going to start out west. Who are your most important starting pitchers in the AL West? In the NL West, we're each going to give our two picks for that later on in the podcast. And then some Yankees talk later on as they plow through their spring training schedule, um, new developments uh, in Yankees camp as well. And I think that leads us into uh, into the opener where David opens the show each week with a topic that he likes to discuss. What is on your mind this week, Tony? Well, I, I think obviously when, you know, we, you know, we're all sort of Yankee centric to a certain extent here. We watch them. We're from New York. Uh, it's our team. So, you know, the big story obviously is what's going to happen in the middle infield. Anthony Volpe making noise, looking great. The new rules playing into the decision making. I find it interesting. I think the smart money's probably him still starting in AAA. The Yankees not panicking, trusting their process, not feeling like they've got to make a roster move and then rearrange the furniture right at the end of spring training. They still have time, time's on their side. But with all that being said, 
Anthony Volpe is not only making noise, but I asked the question that Cal Ripken used to ask when he had the streak going, are we better off? Are we a better team with me in the lineup or not? And I, I said the same thing about Anthony Volpe. Are the Yankees a better team with him on the roster playing every day because of his athleticism, his range defensively, his base running. He's already showed us still second, still third at the drop of a hat. Uh, we know that his bat probably is going to play, even though he hasn't had a lot of triple A at bat. So, you know, will the top shelf pitching, uh, is he ready for that or not? Certainly is a valid question, but you know, if you're a Yankee fan right now, you kind of want to know, and it's hard not to get excited about watching him play because he does have that intangible, that it factor that he impacts, he impacts a game in a lot of different ways, getting on base, running bases, defensive range. All those things are so much more important because of the rules changes, bigger bases, lack of a shift this year and the athleticism being a premium right now. This guy might be the best athlete in the organization right now. Yeah, we, we see flashes of brilliance. And I think that's probably the, the key phrase uh, in, in the game on Monday night, he was starting at shortstop and it was really cool because first four or five guys in that Yankee lineup, they were the regulars you're going to see every day. And then you had Anthony Volpe teaming up with, you know, DJ LeMahieu in the middle of the Yankee infield, he came in on a ground ball early in the game and it, it showed off a lot of the strengths that David, you're, you're talking about there between the footwork, the glove, the arm, really pretty play, obviously doing really well with the bat. I, I, I feel tempted that you could come from the angle of, Hey, like let's rip this bandaid off and, and roll with it. Let's see what it's like here. But um, part of me, Definitely feels like some more more marinating at the highest level of the minor leagues is needed. James, what about you? I think that Oswald Peraza is his job to lose it short. And as far as just having Volpe on the roster, I hate to pour a little cold water on this because I think he's looked fantastic in spring. He's he's put up you know some numbers, but most importantly, he he looks good. He 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 looks good at the plate. He looks good in the field. He's running the base as well. At the same time, though. He's only played 22 games above double A ball. He was called up to triple A last September and he didn't do that well. So if you look at his, his double A numbers, when he was killing it, he had a 122 weighted runs created plus. So he's 22% better than the league average hitter then. And his strikeout rate was under 18%. That's double A. When he got to triple A, it dropped to 91 weighted runs created plus. It was below average and his strikeout rate jumped to 30%. So I think, at this point, it might be best to have him start off in AAA. And if he's killing it with the Rail Riders in April, you can reassess. And I would also like to see him get more time at second base and third base in addition to shortstop because you don't know where things might arise in the Bronx. So if, if Oswald Peraza is starting at short, you could have Volpe getting reps at third base, getting reps at second base. And then if, say, Josh Donaldson isn't working out, early in the season, maybe that's an opportunity to get Volpe in and get some playing time at a position other than shortstop. Sanity, a little, little sanity brought, brought to it all there. I, you know, that's it, exactly right. That's why we love James, you know, the voice of reason. Well, you know what I see with Volpe that's so exciting? I see him as a leadoff hitter in front of Judge. I see him as putting him at the top of the order with that speed. I see him as a distraction on the bases ahead of Judge. I see Aaron Judge getting better pitches because of that. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's, it's not a question of if it's a question of when, and that when that, that window for when Anthony Volpe and his tenure begins is getting pushed forward because of the excitement and how well 
he's handled himself. But I agree with James. Probably, unless there's a big trade on the board that makes the Yankees better from a pitching standpoint, brings in another starting pitcher, some depth, and that includes somebody that's a frontline player that that shakes up the middle infield, then then maybe that gets pushed forward. But other than that, I think patience is probably the way we're going to see it go. You know what else I find really impressive about what we've seen with Anthony Volpe? James alluded to it. He's being pulled in a lot of different directions in spring training, whether obviously getting reps at shortstop, but they're going to give him reps at second base. They want to see how he does at third base. He's hitting near the top or the middle portion of the lineup in every game. He's getting these opportunities, and he's excelling. So there's a lot being put in front of a 21-year-old, and he's taking every single piece of that and running with it. So I find that really impressive, but I think like we're past like, Hey, he needs a little more marinating needs a little more cooking time in the oven. Like, no, Anthony Volpe is very close to being ready to go uh, at the major league level. So if there's a little bit more of a, a weight involved, I think that's, that's okay. And that, that extra, that extra time in AAA, whether it is just maybe a month, month and a half, two months, I think it, it'll be well served for uh, for Anthony Volpe. But obviously what we've seen so far in the spring schedule, uh, it has been electric. It's been really fun to watch. And I big reason why you probably could say the Yankees could use someone like Anthony Volpe right out of the gate are the new rules, right? Like it, it calls for more athleticism on the bases. We see the speed. We see the way he's able to, to run the bases he's obviously familiar with the, the new pitch clock rules as all these young minor leaguers are as more and more games are, are being played here, guys. Um, has there been any particular situation where you feel like the pitch clock rules need to be tweaked based on the games we've seen in spring? Absolutely. I know you brought up Max Scherzer earlier, pushing the system and the gamesmanship. I think with, with men on base, there's a difference between nobody on base and you have 20 seconds and runners are on base or you have 20 seconds and nobody on base. You have 15 seconds with runners on base. Max Scherzer was coming to the set position, ready to throw the ball before the batter was in the box. That's never been done in the history of baseball. In fact, if you tried to do that back in the 1980s, there would, there would have been fights. Hitters would have been really mad. Benches would have been screaming. There would have been free-for-alls. You can't come set to the set position, ready to throw the ball with men on base until the batter's in the box. That's just not in the spirit of the rule. I know Max Scherzer's pushing it. He wants to find out. Okay, I get it. But what he was doing the other day in spring training was not in the spirit of the rule. It cannot be allowed. I think they've already somewhat clarified that from Major League Baseball Central Office. But you have to have the batter in the box looking at the pitcher before the pitcher comes to the set position, ready to deliver the ball from the stretch with men on base. That's interesting. I, I love to hear that perspective from uh, from a pitcher, Coney. And, but the, the, the good thing is this is what it's for, right? We're, we're doing all this in spring training to work out these kinks for a few weeks before the real games start, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, we've got a full month to do it. The players are adapting. They're, they're the best players in the world. They are they are very good at adapting. They will get it. 20 seconds is a long time. The hitters, the hitters haven't gotten used to how much time they actually have. You have time to step out 12 seconds until the eight-second clock until you have to be in and ready and looking at the pitcher at the eight-second point. Uh, that's a long time. 12 seconds is a long time. Hitters have more time than they think. And pitchers are calling the signs earlier than ever before. A lot of the pitchers have the pitch calm on their body, and they're calling the pitches 
before they even get on the mound when they get the ball back. So they have that advantage of already knowing which pitch they're going to throw. So they're waiting on the hitter. The hitter's going to have to have some gamesmanship back. You don't have to step right back in at 15 seconds. You can still take take 10, 8, 10 seconds before you step into the box and look at the pitcher. And uh, I think that cat and mouse game, the hitters are a little bit behind right now because I think they're a little bit of a they're in a little bit of a panic in terms of I don't want to get a strike call on me. I got to be ready to look at the pitcher at the eight second point. They have more time than they think they do. I think they're going to get used to that. We've been like so conditioned watching baseball about that cat and mouse game between pitcher and hitter, and now it's just it's a completely different form of of a cat and mouse game. It's still there, but it's been turned upside down completely. Um, I'm I'm down in spring training right now. I've talked to multiple pitchers from more than one team because I was curious, like, Hey, is Max Scherzer the, the pitcher that we've talked about here on this podcast with these new rules? Is he like the model to watch and take pointers from? And I'll tell you what, more than one pitcher kind of like rolled their eyes at it. And they're like, eh, he's kind of the extreme model. Like we're not going to go that far. And that kind of ties yeah. into what you were saying, David, being, being in that set position, I guess it's part of the, the unwritten rules of the game that need to continue here. I agree. I mean, that just shouldn't be allowed. I don't think it will be. I think it's already somewhat been clarified, as I mentioned before. But that's never been done in the history of the game. Never before have you ever seen a pitcher come to the set position ready to throw with men on base before a batter's in the box. And in fact, as I said before, if that were done in the past, it wouldn't have been allowed. We would have had free-for-alls. There would have been bench-clearing brawls over that particular issue. In fact, you know, when that type of quick pitching has induced sort of, uh, you know, tussles in the past. So it, it, it's, it's something that needs to really be addressed. I think it kind of already has, but it's not that tough. All you have to do, if you're a pitcher and you have men on base, as soon as the batter's in the box looking at you, then you're, you're free to come to the set position and then deliver. Not before. <laughs> not what Max Scherzer was doing the other day. That, that shouldn't be allowed. Uh, it's not right. It's not in the spirit of the, of the rule, and it, it creates chaos. All right, are you guys okay with the, the scenario in which the Yankees' Luis Severino was rewarded with a strikeout over the weekend? He essentially was off the mound. The pitcher was out of the batter's box. Neither was ready. But as soon as Severino made contact with the pitching rubber, the hitter was docked a striker, resulted in a strikeout. Should the hitter have to be ready to swing as soon as that toe touches the mound? Yeah, that's one of those subtle nuances, right? That looked kind of looked kind of uh, funky when it happened, and you know, everybody's looking at each other. I think eventually we're going to have less of those kind of situations and more of the hitter keying in on the clock and understanding when the egg second mark is and being ready at that point. Being, tu- being tuned in to the, the timing factor of it all with runners on base, runners not on base, 20 seconds versus 15 seconds. But, yeah, that one looked a little funny. I'd be interested to, to hear what, uh, you know, Joe Martinez or Raul Albanez would say about that particular case. But I, I think those are going to be few and far between, those, those type of cases, as the hitters get more used to the timing of things and how much they, time they have in between pitches. I think it's fine because the, the idea is that it's not just that the, the batter has to be ready to swing at eight seconds. He just has to be in the box and alert to the pitch. So you can look up to the pitcher and then you can look back down and kind of kick around whatever. As long as you establish that you're in the box, if, if you're in the box at eight seconds and the pitcher is off the rubber, then that's his problem. Then he'll be, and then he, he'll, you'll be getting a ball instead of a strike against you. And that's the pitcher's problem. So 
take care of your house, take care of your thing, and, and just be ready to the pitcher before that clock hits eight and you'll be fine. Yeah, and like that particular instance, if, if the umpire is going to use that discretion and kind of enforce the rule to the T, to the letter of the law, I kind of think it's a, a little weak, but I can't hate on it, on it too much. It, it is the rule. Uh, I think if the pitcher is ready and the batter isn't at that eight-second mark, I feel like the pitcher should begin to throw and kind of earn that strike. But again, if they stay with the current rule, uh, so be I can't hate on it on, uh, too much. We talked about what well, I guess we didn't like with with what Max Scherzer is doing with these these rules here and trying to gain an edge. What do we like with Scherzer? Because good or bad, it seems like he is kind of a step ahead. Well, certainly everything centers around the stretch position with runners on base. That's when a lot of the gamesmanship's going on here. That's what we saw with Max Scherzer the other day. Um, the one thing I did like is you you wait for the hitter you're ready i i think you should have to wait till you till you come to the set position as i said before until the batter is in the box looking at you but once that happens if you can entice the batter to get in there sooner not use up his allotment of 12 seconds right there's 20 seconds in between he's got till the 8 second part if he's in there at 15 seconds then that gives max scherzer a chance to hold the ball for 15 seconds and wait to deliver the ball until the last minute i think that's what you have to guard against if you're a hitter if, you're, if you have Max Scherzer who's playing around with the timing of when to deliver the pitch, then you need to be in tune with the clock and wait till the 10-second mark before you step in the box and then be just under the gun at the 8-second mark when you acknowledge the pitcher and look at the pitcher. And then Max Scherzer can only hold the ball for seven or six seconds at that point. But if you're in the box too soon and you allow him to hold the ball for 15 seconds and you've only got one timeout that you can use, that's where the adjustments periods come for the hitters. And that's what the hitters I think need to be in tune for and need to adjust as far as when they get in the box, they have more time to get in the box than they think they do right now. So we could nitpick about, you know, the earlier conversation about the set position, this part I love because we get to that cat and mouse game of the hitter versus the pitcher. Warren Spahn said hitting is timing. Pitching is upsetting timing. And this is what Max Scherzer is all about in this case. So and, and I, it seems like the general idea is when nobody's on base, attack, constant attack, rushing the hitter. When there's guys on base, you wait and you, and you try and drain that as much as you can. So it'll be really interesting to see how Scherzer and other pitchers address this as we get going into the real meat of the season. And then how do the hitters react to that? Do the hitters trying to, to time up? a pitcher like Max Scherzer with the cat and mouse game. I think there's a whole other game being played with a runner uh, at first base when there's runners on and the way you're utilizing your pickoff allowances, um, whether or not you should immediately burn out your two throws or, and keep the, the runner there kind of in a, in a frozen position or again, burn that first throw and kept them, keep them guessing there because you can kind of only lean so many ways. I think that's a, another interesting game within the game there, working with runners on base. What have you seen there? Well, it really is. You know, the data that we heard from Raul Abanez and, and Joe Martinez was that actually after the second pickoff throw that the, the, the stolen bases didn't really jump, uh, that it almost went the opposite direction. So that cat and mouse game is going to be interesting to watch and follow. I think the whole key to this whole thing is obviously – the pitcher has two throws over to first, but the batter only has one timeout, one step out. So that's sort of how do you get a batter to burn one if you're able to get them in the box too soon 
at the 15 second mark or so. And then you've got Max Scherzer holding the ball for 12 or 13 seconds, trying to freeze the hitter, trying to freeze the runner. At what point do you burn it? How do you play this clock? How do you manage your own time? Worry about your own house, as James said, which is really the right way to put it. Get your own house in order, but at the same time, you've got you've got seconds to play with there too to kind of battle right back at a guy like Max Scherzer. So the whole stolen base thing going to be interesting to follow. Um, I still think that the key is late in the games because when you get hard throwing relievers in late innings, the seventh inning and on in high leverage situations, that's when you can really take advantage of it because those guys are notoriously much slower to home plate. They you generally don't have very good pickoff moves. They don't have a lot of reps with that. Uh, they're used to one inning. They're used to being in their own little world, tunnel vision, throw strikes. That's when we can see that some of these guys to getting taken advantage of and the stolen base come into play when it's a game-changing situation. Lead off walk, steal second, steal third. Now you're third with nobody out against a, a hard-throwing reliever that's slow to home plate. We got to keep an eye on the stolen base attempt numbers. Now, it's early and it's spring training, and the caveat is that stolen base attempts are always higher in spring, in spring training. Last season during the MLB season, 0.68 stolen base attempts per game per team. So far in spring this year, it's up to 1.14. Now, granted, that has a built-in increase because stolen bases always go up in spring training for whatever reason. Uh, writer Jason Collette uh, compared spring training stolen base rates to the regular season. And since 2010, teams steal about 22% less often during the season compared to the spring. Having said that, even if we make that same sort of adjustment for this year, we could have the highest rate of attempted steal since 2012. So we are not going to go vaulting back into the 1980s, but we it does look like we're going to have some kind of increase to get us back a little bit to, to some more stolen bases, which is uh, one of the more popular plays uh, that fans like. David, you mentioned like relievers and how closely we're going to have to pay attention to them. A uh, couple of pitchers who work out of the bullpen, I, I was listening to them talk about this stuff. And, and as far as gamesmanship goes, they were saying like, hey, with two strikes, um, you may see some relievers start a windup, you know, make that little extra step instead of obviously, you're, you know, you're at the stretch. But in terms of two strikes, trying to mess up the hitter's timing, that, that little step windup, could could be a a big difference in getting that third strike whether it's you know ha not having the hitter be ready or just you know work working with timing with two strikes trying to gain any type of edge and advantage here with these new rules that's something that we we have to look out for it, it's a valid point i think the question is is uh be careful what you wish for if you're a pitcher you know pitchers are creatures of habit and creatures of routine and rhythm and timing is everything for a pitcher the cadence of delivering a baseball you want to start messing with that? You better be good at it. You better know what you're doing because you're going to That's mess exactly yourself up. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> you're going I'm to like, mess yourself hey. up. If you're, if yeah. you're not, you, a lot of, a lot of pitchers think, think they're good at stuff and they're not, <laughs> they're, they're, we're definitely not, you know, not everybody's Nestor Cortez. Not everybody can do that. So you better be, you better be sure you better practice it. And even in practice, it's different than in the ninth inning with the game on the line. Your release point changes. Everything can change. Your whole tempo changes. So, yeah, you want to start messing with that on the chance marginally that you might mess up a hitter's timing, risk reward. I don't know. Yeah, that's something I'd be very careful about. Yeah, you don't want to mess around just for the sake of messing around. Right. Uh, 
keeping it, I guess, with, with Max Scherzer here and, and focusing in on the Mets, they said that there will be times during the regular season, maybe when they're, you know, they have big stretches of 10 straight games, uh, a big stretch where maybe they're playing 18 out of 20, something like that. They are going to incorporate a six man rotation. You have two, two big guns at the front of their rotation, obviously up there in age with Scherzer and, and Justin Verlander. But I'm, I'm wondering, David, with a six-man rotation, if you are part of that starting rotation, what does a pitcher actually have to do differently to prepare properly for his turn in the rotation? Well, you know, I would say, and my suggestion would be, especially with, with veteran pitchers that have a lot of miles on them, just take the extra day rest. Just take the recovery time. That's something we've learned through through a lot of the medical data, that the recovery time is the key. And just to take an extra day of rest is going to be really helpful. And we've already kind of seen that over the last uh, year or two because of the extra off days that have been built into the schedule. It's almost like a pseudo six-man rotation anyway. Uh, a lot of pitchers are getting an extra day's rest just because of the schedule. So uh, I would I would anticipate that to continue. Uh, some pitchers that are younger that that have trouble, uh, you know, wearing off the rush, rough edges, so to speak, kind of rhythm and timing and release point. Maybe you could throw twice in between starts. It's what the Atlanta Braves used to do a lot of is a touch and feel session just off the mound and off the slope, maybe twice uh, on the second day and then maybe the fourth day. So I, I would mess around with that a little bit, depending on who you are and how you feel about your mechanics. But take the rest, take the recovery time. Uh, that's what we've learned that, 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 that's the most important thing, especially for veteran pitchers. Max Scherzer's 38, Justin Verlander's 40. And the thinking with the Mets, they're already, uh, they have a locked and loaded, very good team. They, even at the beginning of the season, certain teams have an eye towards October. The Mets can be one of those teams, especially when you have those two at the top of your rotation, the priority has to be, how do we have these guys in good shape and rolling in October. Now, Justin Verlander's the, the guy that jumps out at me with this. He made 32 starts between last regular season and postseason. The number of those 32 starts that he made on four days rest was five. So he was working on extra rest regularly. And Dusty Baker did a good job of spacing out his starts, giving him a day where he could. So Buck Showalter is going to have to have that same kind of outlook for him looking ahead a six-man rotation it's good and that it can keep guys fresh but then you're giving starts to a lesser pitcher right so your aces in a five-man rotation might go 31 32 33 starts in a season but if you go to a strict six-man everybody's only making 27 starts so you're taking five or six games away from each of these guys and giving them to a depth starter so maybe it's not something you want to do all the time but like like you said, Shaq, there's going to be times during the season we see every team do this, where you have a stretch where, you, you know, you got some double headers, you have a, a long road trip, you have 14 games in 16 days, something like that. It's going to be a good spot to give somebody an extra day. Yeah, to reiterate, this isn't going to be a situation where the Mets have a six-man rotation April through September. It's just going to be for those busy stretches. And again, keep those two pitchers fresh and maximize them, keep them healthy, do what the, you know, do right by them, do smart by them, I guess, if that's even a phrase, like keeping them preserved all the way through the end of October, because that's where the Mets want to be. And you mentioned how 
the Astros managed Verlander last year kind of segues nicely into this next topic here because Justin Verlander is no longer a member of the Houston Astros. And we're wondering here, as we approach opening day, we're going to take a look at the most important starting pitchers uh, in each regional division each week. So we're going to start with the AL and NL West divisions this week. The question, who is the most important starting pitcher, in your opinion, in the AL West, in the, uh, in the NL West as well? So AL West, let's start there. James, who do you have? Uh, I get first dibs. Um, I'm going to go with Robbie Ray of the Seattle Mariners. Which Robbie Ray are we going to get? The 2021 Cy Young winner with the Blue Jays, where he had a 284 ERA, a 157 ERA plus. 2022 was a step back. He was more of a league average pitcher with a 3.71 ERA, strikeouts ticked down, walks ticked up, still better than before his big breakout. But considering where the Mariners are in the American League and in the American League West, the difference between a league average Robbie Ray and uh, a more of an ace like Robbie Ray could be the difference between the Mariners making a run of the division, locking in a wild card, et cetera. So I think you know, everyone knows what you're going to get out of Luis Castillo. Logan Gilbert's fantastic. George Kirby was my pick a couple weeks ago for one of my breakout pitchers. I think their rotation's really good. Robbie Ray could be the difference between the Mariners being good and being great. David, who do you think? Uh, well, you know, I think uh, I agree with James as far as that goes. Uh, but, you know, I'm a big believer in the balance of power shaper. You know, we, we saw that with Verlander when he was traded from Detroit to Houston. Last year, the balance of power shifter was Luis Castillo. I mean, he, he pitched like a real frontline starter. He parlayed that into an extension. So I really believe like, you know, that the number one guy on your staff sets the tone. Is he a Cy Young guy like he showed last year? If he is, that changes everything for Seattle for the full year. So I think he leads the way. I think James makes a great point about Robbie Ray or the rest of their starters in Seattle, but we're all looking at Seattle, right? That they're ready to take that next step. So when you, when you're thinking about out West and you're looking at the American league West, it's easy to point to Houston. We could pick any one of their starters and say the same thing. Who's going to take Justin Verlander's place. Can they repeat? But in, in the view of Seattle, making that next monster move, if Luis Castillo is that monster we saw last year, that changes everything for me. So I'm looking at him. I'll tell you guys, I'm slightly shocked. I, I thought we were going to hear about Shohei Otani from, from, from one of you at the very least. But uh, I'll tell you what, I'm sticking with the Mariners too, and I'm going with a different starting pitcher from Robbie Ray and Luis Castillo. <laughs> I, I, I hear what James is saying about Robbie Ray. I think it's important he, he, if he's able to return to that 2021 form, uh, even be 80 90% of that, I think – it, it could shift the balance of power in that division. Luis Castillo is at the head there. I kind of have all like the, the blind faith in a guy like Luis Castillo to serve up exactly what the Mariners are hoping that he could be. So I'm going with Logan Gilbert here. Um, I, I don't think Houston's going anywhere, but we wouldn't be shocked if, if the Mariners win that division. I think for that to happen, Logan Gilbert needs to take another step forward here. He threw a career high in innings. He was, I think, 15 innings shy of the 200-inning mark. And I'm wondering, 
how that affects him, how that overlaps into this season. What's the carryover effect in that career high in innings? Because it was it was 185 innings last year. His previous high was in the minors at 135 innings. I think for for the Mariners to build off that coming out party of 2022, Gilbert, George Kirby, the younger starters compared to Array or Luis Castillo, they need to take it to another level. So I would say Logan Gilbert, who I think has so much talent, um, needs to take it to, to another level here for the Mariners to build off that 2022 performance. They can lay claim that they have the best rotation in the American League. Uh, I, I think it doesn't start with guys like Luis Castillo. I feel like Luis Castillo is going to be there. I think it comes back to guys like Logan Gilbert, George Kirby, two young starters who are still trying to prove themselves that they can get to that elite level. I think that's where it, it begins for, for Seattle here. Um, interesting. We all had Mariners pitchers there. Yeah. You know, it, it all <laughs> falls into place. If Luis Castillo was Luis Castillo, mm-hmm. otherwise every, if he gets hurt, like he has in the past and ends up on the IL, everybody gets bumped up. Now who's number one, Robbie Ray's got to be the one who's number two. Those guys serve a better purpose. If they're three and four, that that's what makes their rotation so deep. You know, if, if you, you have to be a number three starter or a number one starter, that's a big difference in my mind. That's why I went with Castillo, but Points taken all across the board. You're right. We're all we're all uh, uh, Seattle centric right here because we see something coming there. Uh, yeah, it, it will be interesting to watch. And certainly Definitely. Shohei Otani is is showtime every time he takes the mound or in steps in the box. I can't believe we all took three <laughs> Mariners. This is great. We, how we we don't give our we don't disclose our picks until we're actually yeah. recording. Yeah, I can't believe nobody said Jacob Degrom. I was gonna say him. I figured Ah, Coney or Shaq will probably take him. Yeah. He's yeah. huge in the AL West. Especially right. with where the Rangers are, they a 500 team? Are they below 500? Are they above 500? Degrom's going to be such a big swing guy there, and Otani might be a little cheat too because he's also one of the best uh, hitters in any lineup yeah. in the league, and he's also right. the ace of the staff of an Angels team that also should be on the fringes of a wild card race. Yeah, as far as like level of importance goes, like Shohei Otani could be the most important player in baseball this year, given his free agent status yeah. coming up and everything that surrounds there. But yeah, for for this division, how the narrative has been shaped over the last couple of years, you see what the Mariners are doing. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, I'm not I'm not completely shocked that we're going with three Mariners pitchers. I, yeah. I think it was more shocking that we all had different <laughs> yeah, starting pitchers all in the different, Mariners rotation. All different. Yeah, it's a all different right, how about sh- that? Difference between pretenders and contenders, right? Who do you really believe is a contender? No. That's right. Uh, NL West, let's snake around here. I'll go first. Um, Julio Arias of the Dodgers is that guy for me. There's a lot of question marks about the, the health of a lot of Dodgers starting pitchers. Clayton Kershaw's back is a perennial concern at this point. Tony Gonsolin missed a lot of time last year despite pitching really well for, for L.A., especially in the first half. Dustin Mays coming back. From Tommy John surgery, it's going to be his his first full season. I think Arias, obviously pitching for for a big payday and free agency, and there is serious pressure within that division. Padres are breathing down their neck like never before. I think the only way for the Dodgers to feel really good about their their 2023 season at the end there is if Julio Arias is able to say it to himself in October November, man. I just had the best season of my life and my pockets are about to get really fat. So Urias is that guy for me. I'll go to James. We'll, we'll switch up the order and let James follow up. <laughs> All right, then. Uh, I like that Urias pick. I 
that would have been my number one. I'm going to go instead then with you Darvish. And I, it turns out it's going to be a little bit similar to the Robbie Ray thing. Cause you're seeing a, a, a different season from 21 to 22 and which guy are we going to get? So Darvish in 2021 had a real setback. He had a four, two, two ERA. That's not like him, a 92 ERA plus a below average starter. That isn't, that isn't the you Darvish we all know and love. He was fantastic in 2022 with a 310 ERA, a 121 ERA plus a rock making 30 starts a year. That's the guy that we're used to seeing. If the Padres are actually going to dethrone the Dodgers and win a division title, I think it's going to be built around Darvish. You have guys like Snell in the back of the rotation. Seth Lugo is a question mark as he is transitioning to starting again. Darvish is sort of, I think, I know so much of the focus on San Diego is on the stars on offense, but Darvish is a rock in that rotation. He can really solidify the Padres as they really make a push here. Great point. That's the same points I were making about Luis Castillo, right? The number one starter has to lead the staff. Uh, I totally agree with that. I'm going to go a different direction. I was thinking you Darvish a little bit as well, but I think with the updated information we have and staying in San Diego, the fact that Joe Musgrove has a fractured toe, from a weight room injury, that's a big deal. And he's a big deal to that rotation because I think, uh, you know, San Diego to do what they need to do, uh, Joe Musgrove in the number two is kind of like a secondary ace. He's almost like a 1B to you, Darvish being 1A. I'm wondering how, how serious that injury is. Does it impact him? Toe injuries are so big for pitchers. Going back to Dizzy Dean, the story when he took a line drive off of his foot and broke his toe, he ended up hurting his arm because his balance was off. I I know I fractured a toe uh, late in my career, and it affected my balance on the mound uh, to the point where I didn't even realize that that my my rhythm and my delivery was off a bit, and I ended up you know losing some velocity and a little bit of a uh, arm trouble as well. So uh, I'm curious about Joe Musgrove. I think it's a big deal. How serious is that fracture toe? How much time is he going to miss? And when he does come back, does it impact his throwing? Because he's a big part of that rotation in San Diego, and he he needs to be kind of the co-ace with you, Darvish, for them to do what they need to do. Yeah, uh, totally agree. I think Joe Musgrove has the potential to kind of leapfrog you, Darvish, to be the ace in, in 2023. But, yeah, a setback right out of the gate It's going to – kind of have to make up for that lost time because that division race, these games in April, they are going to matter just as much as the games down the stretch here. Musgrove is some is someone that the Padres kind of need for the entirety of the regular season. If you ever, if you ever want to see something really nasty, look at pitcher's feet. You know, the Pedro Martinez had the ugliest toes I've ever seen from dragging your, your push off leg, your push off foot that's connected to the rubber has to drag and gets beaten up. And then your land leg too, the way you just slam your foot into the ground, your, your feet take a beating if you're a pitcher and they're, you know, broken toes, a big deal. Yeah. You add a kettlebell into the equation and everything just gets flipped around. <laughs> yes. Now, Coney, uh, when you've had your, your foot troubles, your toe problems, did you do what Joe Musgrove is doing? So this is what Joe Musgrove is doing uh, for the Padres this week. He's spending two hours a day in a hyperbaric chamber, which simulates being 50 feet below sea level. So his lungs are absorbing the oxygen that's pumped in, prompting his body to create stem cells that promote healing. That's a story from a couple of days ago in the San Diego Union Tribune about Musgrove's 
uh, attempt to rehab this broken toe and get back on the field faster. Do you ever do anything like that? Uh, I would have, <laughs> if I could have definitely, I would have tried. I was one of those guys that tried anything. I was one of the pitchers, you know, I, I, I was a big time swimmer, hot tub, swim, sauna the day after I pitched. So I was trying to flush and, and, and you know, kind of uh, get the blood flow going. I was also one of the first pitchers to use acupuncture and cupping. I would show up in the clubhouse back in the nineties with the Yankees with cupping marks all over my shoulder from, from a cupping procedure, Chinese acupuncture uh, that left kind of bruising and, and uh, all over my shoulder. And people looked at me like I, I was nuts. Absolutely crazy. I, I think we see it a lot now. A lot of pitchers are using acupuncture. I was, I was one of the first ones, at least that I knew of that was doing it. David, are you into the, the fitness fad where you, you take the, uh, the ice bath plunge for like five minutes each day to kind of wake you up at the start of every morning? I feel like you would be into that. <laughs> I, you know, I did it, you know, as I said before, when, when, uh, one of my main workouts was, was swimming, but I would do it with a hot tub and keep the pool extra cold. So it wasn't like an ice bath, but I would definitely go from hot tub sauna to hot tub to a cold pool. Uh, and if I had a chance to get into a cold plunge anywhere, I would certainly try it. But as far as the ice baths go now, nah, that, that was a little extreme for me, but you know, certainly any, anything to get blood flow, anything to get circulation. Uh, to me was, was a big deal in terms of recovery, getting lactic acid out, getting, getting your, getting your arm and your whole body to recover after beating it up for 135 pitches, you know, that, that I used to almost average back, back uh, in the nineties. That's interesting. You, you started cupping before it was pretty much a thing. If you see a guy in a baseball clubhouse now without those cupping marks, it's like, Hey, you're doing it wrong. What are are we doing here? (laughs) Um, all right, guys, let's get to our Yankee chat here. Uh, all spring. Aaron Boone has pretty much been asked, hey, how are you going to get the right amount of at-bats to all of these infielders that you have? And also kind of extends to, to left field as well. They have a lot of players for not so many positions in the infield. Um, between three people at shortstop, IKF, Anthony Volpe, Oswald Peraza, you have Oswaldo Cabrera, who's an infielder at heart. Obviously, he's going to be experimenting in, in left field. Aaron Hicks is in there in the mix in left field, you have Josh Donaldson at third base, Clay Torres at second, DJ LeMay, who's floating around pretty much all of those positions, first, second, third, very important bat. I think one of the top three most important bats in the, in the Yankees lineup. And what you're hearing is, well, hey, we're going to put this guy at this position and uh, another player at this position. Those positions aren't their natural spots. And yeah, versatility is terrific, but if you could play devil's advocate and say, well, if it's not natural, like if they didn't start this kind of at a young age, like, and, and you have a, a player in their maybe late twenties, early thirties, whatever it is, just kind of starting to experiment at a different position. Is that kind of overthinking the cause here? Like are, are the Yankees shoehorning too many players in new positions? Well, I think it all centers once again around DJ LeMahieu, and this has really been a bit of the quandary, even though it's solved itself over the years, of when they first signed DJ LeMahieu to be this super utility guy, and this guy was a gold glove second baseman. To me, it comes down to him at third base, him and Josh Donaldson. How how good does Josh Donaldson look early in the year? How many reps at third base will DJ LeMahieu get? Is he fully healthy? Can he hold up? Um, yeah, you can move him around. You can spell Glaber at second. Yeah, you could spell Anthony Rizzo at first base. DJ can certainly do that. If Judge, if Aaron Judge plays some left field, then you can get him some DH spots to keep his bat in the lineup. Assuming that 
they're going to use him at his traditional leadoff spot uh, that he's that he's been employed in the past with with Aaron Boone in his lineup. Who's the leadoff guy? I think the future's Anthony Volpe in the leadoff spot. I think right now is probably still DJ LeMahieu. But on opening day, is he even in the lineup? Big question right now, right? I mean, opening day, your shortstop's going to be your shortstop, whoever that is, either IKF, Volpe, or, or Peraza, probably Peraza. Flavor's going to be at second base. Josh Donaldson's probably going to be at third base. Rizzo's going to be at first. So unless Aaron Judge is going to play left field on opening day, then DJ LeMayhew's going to be out of the lineup. So I think this still centers around DJ LeMayhew and what happens at third base. Is, is Josh Donaldson going to get a chance? Is he going to Is he going to thrive? Is he going to have a bounce back? And then you're just going to have DJ LeMahieu as a super utility guy. And then, then you got Oswald Carrera too, as, as sort of the super utility guy. And we know that Aaron Hicks is probably going to get a shot in left field early in the season. We know that Josh Donaldson is probably going to get a shot at third base early in the season, how those things shake out. It's going to go a long way towards how this whole problem solves itself. I think the important thing is that as long as you're moving guys down the defensive spectrum, that's a good thing. The, the positions, at the top of the defensive spectrum, center field, shortstop, second base. These are positions where if you can play that, it's easier to slide to another position than to be at third base or first base and try to play in the middle infield. You can't do that. So for LeMahieu, when they got him, oh, they get this great gold glove second baseman. He's played second. He was terrific at third base. He was outstanding there. He still plays a good second. He can even spell Rizzo at first. But if you're a second baseman, he got the hang of first base pretty quickly. So he's insurance for Rizzo there with Rizzo, you know, having some back flare ups late in the season. Also, you could play him there against a tough lefty. If, if you want to give Rizzo a day, he's your Josh Donaldson insurance. If, if Donaldson gets out of the gate really slow, well, then LeMayhew can pick up some more starts at third base. Glaber Torres, I think is, has become underrated uh, with the Yankees. He had a four win season last year and he was much closer to the 1819 Glaber than the 2021 uh downslide uh Glaber and then as far as some of the other spots you know I think a lot there's a lot of uh, talk about Aaron Judge moving from right to left I think it's a non-issue he is one of the best defensive right fielders in the game he was even able to handle center field last year so left field should be a piece of cake for him and I think this this kind of versatility is nothing but a good thing. And as far as finding at bats for people, now, if you go into a season, you say, okay, I want so-and-so to get, you know, hopefully somebody gets 500 plate appearances or 600 plate appearances or 700 plate appearances. If you add it all up between the four infield positions, there were about there in a season, there's about 27 to 2,800 plate appearances to go around just between those four spots, let alone DH, let alone, you know, if Oswaldo Cabrera is playing some infield, playing some outfield. There's plenty of time to go around, and that's before you get into injuries. So hopefully everybody's healthy, and you're just able to cycle guys through and keep guys fresh. All right, as far as opening day uh, approaching, like, a little over three weeks now, and you have all these at-bats. Obviously, you need people for these at-bats. There's a gluttony of people at the moment. People keep hinting at, hey, hey, maybe a trade is in the works. Maybe a trade could could be happening. So these things may sort itself out. But given who we have at Yankee Spring Training right now, leading into opening day, I'm wondering who is your surprise pick for the New York Yankees in 2023? If you had to pick one, uh, again, good surprise, bad surprise. 
maybe in the middle. Who is your surprise pick for the New York Yankees? Well, I, I think, you know, potentially uh, there could be a surprise pick in left field. And just because of how good that Willie Calhoun has looked and, and Rafael Ortega, for that matter, two left-handed bats with pop. They're swinging a bat exceptionally well. They're professional hitters. They're veterans. If you're looking for, you know, a lefty bat for Yankee Stadium and you're looking to platoon left field, maybe, you know, we, we can get a lefty in the lineup and then use Hicks as a right-handed option there. Uh, maybe there's a surprise there just because of how well they're playing in spring training. I love their swings, just the early going two professional hitters, two really good left-handed swings. Now I, I know they're bad first. I don't know defensively how they'd rank maybe average ish, you know, in terms of their career. Uh, so they're, they're not known for their defense, but those, those are two legitimate left-handed bats right there and nice depth pieces for the Yankees. So under the radar, some some pretty good some pretty good uh, left-handed bats for choices there might be a surprise right there. It's a good way to keep your options open. You know, if it, maybe these guys can start in Scranton, maybe if somebody makes the team. But the but Ortega, an above-average hitter, combined over the last two seasons with the Cubs. Willie Calhoun, his best days are a little further back, 2019, but that's really because he's had some horrific injury luck, hit by pitches, broken bones, just some real setbacks over the last couple of seasons, but maybe you catch lightning in a bottle. My pick, I'm going to go to the pitcher's mound and I'm going to go with Matt Crook, a lefty sinker slider guy, insane movement, got better as last season went along at AAA. So after mid-June, he had an ERA of 320 with a 197 opponent batting average. He's a big ground ball guy, 55% ground ball rate. He had a stretch last year where he retired 42 hitters in a row and there's going to be opportunity. They're all, teams cycle through so many pitchers over the course of a season. You could look at somebody's one through five rotation or one through eight bullpen depth chart. There are always other guys that are going to have to step in. And I think Matt Crook could be a guy, whether it's as a starter, as a, as a six, seven, eight depth charter, depth starter, or even as a, as a, as a relief option, maybe he cracks the bullpen first. Maybe he's a multi-inning guy, the swing guy. I think he uh, he can step in and maybe uh, open some eyes as, as a breakout sort of player. Great pick. Yeah. Great pick. You know, the Yankees are short on depth. You're right. And starting. So that's the question for him. He could, he could use, they could use him right now, right out of spring. As you said, a, a multi-inning guy and, you know, a ground ball strikeout guy. Yeah. I loved, I loved what I saw from him the other day, but do they need him stretched out in triple a to take a spot? If somebody gets hurt in the rotation, I think that's the, that's the question, but yes, love that pick. All right, my surprise pick is of the uh, the bounce back variety. And hey, let me preface this: I know it's gonna, not going to be a popular pick here. People are going to say you are crazy, Justin. But I am going with a surprise bounce back season at the plate for Josh Donaldson. Um, Aaron Boone has said it. He said you were crazy if you know you don't think the offensive ability is is still in there i get that that's what the club kind of has to say to defend its player for a variety of reasons i have found it really hard to believe since the end of last season and and he and josh allison was asked like hey are you healthy and he specifically about a shoulder injury and right away he dismissed it he says yeah i was fine i i still find it really hard to believe that you can be that solid defensively yet people claim 
that his age has robbed him of, his, of all his offensive skills. So, and I know the data obviously doesn't support that, but I just feel like a combination of thinking of where he was at this point last year, the lockout, getting traded, uh, you know, that, that kind of late start, the, whether or not there was a physical ailment, I, I really believe that you're going to see a, well, there was a big bang here in the hotel, pardon that. Um, I really think that you're going to uh, see a higher level of offense. What it is exactly, I don't know. Is it going to be closer to what we've known of Josh Donaldson in, in the past? Is it going to be somewhere in the middle between the the floor of, of last year and you know his, his routine ceiling? Obviously, in the mid to late 30s, a lot to to scramble out there, but I really believe that you are going to see an improvement and that is going to be in a lot of eyes of the Yankee fans, a surprise here in 2023. So I'm going with Josh Donaldson to kind of bounce back uh, at the plate there. Valid point. All, all well taken, you know, and these things are measurable. It used to be 20 years ago, you'd say, well, he lost a step or he's lost some bat speed. Well, now you can measure that exit velocity, his numbers against fastballs, especially 95 miles an hour and up. These are all things we measure now and we'll get a read early in the season on. And, you know, it, it's sort of like uh, trust, but verify what you see with your eyes can be backed up with the metrics and with the analytics now. So uh, it's, it's, it's a something worth watching and something that we can sort of not only watch, but measure in the first month of the season. Donaldson is, we're not that far removed from him being a really good hitter. So if we're going with his OPS plus since 2019, so this is his OPS compared to the league average, 126, 132, 127, 94. Now, when you're talking about a guy who's going into his age 37 season, you say, well, was last year's drop from 127 being 27% better than average and a legitimate middle of the order force to a subpar 94? Is that him falling off the cliff? Is the end here for him finally? It, it's a boomer bust pick because we could look up on May 1st and say, oh, wow, it really is the end. Or even if, can, if he goes a little bit over 100 and you say, oh, wow, maybe he is bouncing it back a little bit, or maybe he's halfway between last year and 2021, and then you have a productive hitter. Now, Coney, you mentioned you know, some of the, the underlying things that you can measure. Well, Donaldson, just looking at some of the uh, baseball savant uh, measurables here. So his percentile rankings, uh, his average exit velocity, his hard hit percentage, his barrel rate. Now, he was in the top 5% of big league hitters in 2021. He dropped significantly, but he was still in the upper third of the league in these categories. He was chasing more. He struck out more. He walked less. But there's other things in there, too, where there's something salvageable in there for Donaldson. Yeah, I think if, look, if, if, if there's a middle ground between last year and 2021, like you said, obviously combining that with the defense, Yankees have something there in their lineup in the form of Josh Donaldson. So a bit of a surprise. A lot of people probably think Justin's a little crazy here. Those are my picks. Something to watch for here as this spring rolls on. Uh, anything else, guys, before we wrap it up for this week? Not really. You get dog days of spring training. And now, you know, um, the Yankees have notoriously said, uh, we wait till the end of spring training to make decisions. Well, we're getting close. They're getting close to having to make some decisions here. And as Aaron Boone said, hey, we're paying attention. You know, and there are decisions to be made. I think we can probably 
guess you can make your bets right now and say, you know what? The Yankees don't have to panic. We, we know they're going to give, you know, the basic pieces a try. Uh, one, one piece to watch is, is uh, Os- Oswald Peraza and his leg injury, his lower leg issue. And he's supposed to play, I think, over the next day or two. So it's something to monitor there. When you're trying to win a shortstop job and you're, you come up with a little bit of an injury in spring training, that can change everything. So his overall health, I think, uh, is something to watch right now as far as the shortstop battle goes. Just the, uh, the call of dog days of spring training. We can kind of skip over that a little bit now because starting this week is the World Baseball Classic. It's going to beat the hell out of the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League. Be these fun, loaded all-star team types playing on an international stage. The players get really hyped for it. It's exciting. World Baseball Classic beginning in earnest here later this week. Uh, That's going to do it for this episode, guys. Appreciate you tuning in. Uh, Please subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. That way you do not miss the latest of what's going on here on Tone of the Slab. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, our terrific producer, Dan Work, this is Justin Shackle. We will talk to you next week on Tone of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. Take care.